We turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 this morning, which is the final set of verses in this epistle. Next week we will begin the book of Daniel. So we have much to look forward to. Hear the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul speaking says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray together. Father, again, we ask for your help. That we might know that your holy throne is over all this earth. That we would know that your word is your law. Your word is also the, the source of life for all. We pray, Father, that you would continue to give us life and love through your word. Pray that you would, your spirit would work in us to make us to understand it, that you would shed light upon the meaning of these words, that we would be able to move in and out of the ancient culture in which Paul wrote these words back into our own culture to know how to apply them, both to ourselves as individuals as well as as church. We pray, Father, that you would help us to to live in a way in which Christ and his church would be glorified in our lives in this generation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As David said earlier, um, it's a little over 500 years since uh, Martin Luther originally penned his 95 theses to the, the door of the church in, in Wittenberg in, in Germany. Again, uh, the, the concept of the Protestant Reformation was not based upon any desire to divide the church or destroy the church or anything of that nature. Again, the original, according to its meaning, was the idea that it was a protest against the way theology was being taught in the church, a way in which the gospel was being diminished in, in so many ways. And so it was the, the leaders of the church, of the Catholic church at that time, who refused to listen to these protests, refused to act upon uh, these concerns that uh, ultimately led to Martin Luther's excommunication as well as the excommunication of a, of a number of other men and women as well. And they started new denominations because of these wholesale excommunications, if you will. Um, and uh, their desire ultimately was to restore the fundamental integrity of the church according to the Word of God, to teach the true gospel of Christ. And so it was these religious figures in, in Luther's day that are actually very similar to what Paul was dealing with in the church at Corinth in his day, uh, for we find that the, the Apostle Paul is dealing with these so-called super-apostles who, who believed they were above reproach, who also believed that uh, they were sort of masters over the people, but Paul actually says that they're messengers of Satan because they were diminishing the health of the church as a whole. In the same way, strangely enough, Luther refers to the Pope as the Antichrist himself, for he places himself in the role of Christ. Uh, same way, uh, Luther also called the monks of the church parasites and lazy bones because they refused to do any work and wanted to feed off of the labors of others. He refers to the vast majority of bishops as belly gods and wolves. And he referred to the priests as merchants of souls. 
In other words, they're willing to sell a soul in order to make a profit. You can see why they didn't really like Luther all that much. In fact, wanted to kill him. But he's really not saying much different than what the Apostle Paul was saying against these super apostles uh, in his own day. They were boasting in their flesh rather than boasting in Christ. Uh, Luther, a big part of his, his theology is teaching what he refers to as the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. Uh, his opponents were promoting, glorifying themselves, whereas Luther's trying to promote Christ and the glory of Christ in the same way that Paul was saying, stop boasting in your flesh, but rather boast and glory in Christ. These men had sold themselves as masters over the people, whereas Paul and Luther were saying, no, you're servants of the people. In fact, um, Luther is the one who restores the very word minister to the life of the church. The bishops and the priests were calling themselves by all these really high names, and he says, you're just ministers, which means servants. It was a role that was only relegated to the deacons at the time. He says, but you also are servants of God, servants of the church, and he started calling them ministers, which is why the vast majority of churches today, the leaders of the church call themselves ministers because of the Protestant Reformation. But again, Paul has been teaching this truth for the last couple of chapters. This is sort of the summary of what he's been doing, uh, trying to show how he is different from the, he's his antagonist. They, the whole time, are trying to lord it over their people, whereas Paul is trying to serve the people of God. Uh, he's not wanting to tear down the church. He's wanting to build it up. But at the same time, by pointing out these sins, uh, pointing out these errors in the life of the church, it's causing division. And so he says we must purify the fellowship of the church, even if that means we have to cast out these men who are causing this, this major problem within the life of the church. But before, before Paul signs off on the letter, uh, this is what he's been talking about the last couple of chapters. Now he wants to leave some encouraging words, if you will, to the life of the faithful, to the remnant of God's people, uh, how to continue to seek what is best for the life of the church. And so this morning we're going to focus on these last words that he mentions. He provides a few exhortations as well as some greetings and then finally a benediction as well. So that's what we're going to be focusing on this morning. First, Paul begins with five very brief exhortations. In fact, in the Greek language, most of them are all just one word in the Greek. Um, and, and they're meant to be sort of a summary of what he's been saying all along throughout this epistle. But he wants them to remember them. They're very important. He wants them to remember to focus on these more than many other truths, if you will. Paul has been saying from the very beginning to focus on some of these things. So, so one of the first ones that he, that he focuses on, well, actually before we get to that, note, notice that this is actually a very common pattern that Paul uses in many of his epistles. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he does something very similar. He sort of summarizes very briefly, very concisely a number of commands. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Right? These, there's much more to these, but he's saying it very quickly toward the end of his epistle. Same way, Peter in 1 Peter uh, says, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, have tender heart, have humility. All of these are meant to be meditated upon and, and, and look back into the epistle to see what he has said about these very things because he's elaborating on them elsewhere. But interestingly, when Peter says, finally, brothers, have unity of mind, sympathy, etc., he's not actually done with his sermon, if you will, because it's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, and he's got two more chapters to go. And the same way, when Paul says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, finally, 
walk in such a way as to be pleasing to the Lord. He's not done. He's got two more chapters to go. In the same way, Philippians twice, Paul says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice, but he's got two more chapters to go. And then he says it again later on, Philippians 4.8, finally, think about these things, but he's still got another chapter to go. So just, just so you know, whenever a pastor says finally in a sermon, he does not mean immediately this is coming to an end. Just know that. In, in fact, if you think about it, we have been living in the final days or the last days for 2,000 years. So it could be a very long sermon when a pastor says, finally. But in this particular case, Paul is actually finally, immediately coming to the end of this epistle, and he's only got a few words that he really wants them to meditate upon. And so the first one he gives them is in verse 11. He says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Now, you know Paul says the same thing to Philippians. He says it twice. I'll say it again. Rejoice. He says it to the Thessalonians as well. Simply rejoice always. And now, again, he's saying to them to rejoice as uh, one of the main things he wants them to do. Now, what, what does it mean to rejoice? Why so simple? Why so concise? It's simply to have a gladness of heart and to find and pursue and enjoy some aspect of delight in the Lord. And it's interesting, out of all the things he could have told them to do, all the commands he could have given them, this is the first one he gives them, not to go out and do something for the Lord, but rather somehow to give praise for what the Lord has already done for them, to enjoy what the Lord has already done for them. It's interesting if you've been reading along in the devotionals with us, we've been in the book of Psalms. And uh, this week we were in a number of different ones, but two of the Psalms stuck out to me because they kept using the same word. Psalm 32 and Psalm 33 kept using the word shout. And I was just thinking about that. It's, it's a command, and I started looking up every time the Lord commands us to shout. It's not one that Presbyterians focus on a lot, I don't think. But to shout, why does he want us to shout? Instead of telling Israel, do more for God. Bring to God more sacrifices. Submit yourself more thoroughly unto the Lord. The first thing he wants them to do is to praise him and to shout that God has done so many good things for them, that he has delivered them, he has saved them, that he has ruled over them, that he has protected them from their enemies in so many different ways. Psalm 32, verse 11, after confessing his sin unto the Lord, David says to all the Israel, Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O you righteous Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Why? Because God has been so merciful to you. You should shout about it. In the same way, Psalm 33, verse 1, he says to Israel, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Why? Because praise befits the upright, those who are now considered righteous. You should shout that you who once were wicked are now righteous. You should shout that once who was a stranger and alien to the ways of God, now you know the Lord. You should praise him. You should give thanks to him. You should rejoice in the fact that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is ultimately what Paul is saying in the New Testament, basing upon what has been said in the Old. Why are God's people called to shout? Because the Lord is our deliverer. He's our Savior. He's our King. He's our Lord. He has saved us from death and hell forever. He has saved us from the wages of sin. You should shout. This is fundamental to the Christian life. In, in fact, if I were to compare it in some way to, say, the religion of Islam, the, the word Islam literally means submission. The, the whole aspect of I, I got to keep a certain 
five pillars of Islam in order to obtain my salvation. I have to keep these five things. There's no list of rules in Christianity that you have to follow these things in order to be saved. Rather, what he tells us to do is shout that you've been saved. Rejoice that God has done it all, that he has sent his son Jesus to do it all. There's no steps for you to follow. He's already done it. It's done. Shout. Rejoice. It's done. This is fundamental to our growth in Christ Jesus that we can already know that it's already been done. The fact that, the fact that every Sunday we come here, what are we doing? We're singing. We're clapping. We're shouting. God has done it all. He's done it all. What is it, the, the, the hymn that we did earlier today? All glory be to Christ. He's done it all. And, and this is so fundamental to Paul's understanding of the gospel and should be to ours as well, that anything he tells them to do after this hinges upon this first one. Rejoice in the Lord. Don't come and bring more. Don't try to do more good for me. Just rejoice that I've done it for you. It's fundamental. And from that... It's, it's important that we understand that uh, the second thing he says is to aim for restoration. It's a great word. Um, he's just used the same word if you look back at verse 9. There in verse 9, Paul says, For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, for your restoration is what we pray for. Now, in the, in the Greek, the word can mean to mend, like when you're mending nets, if you will. It can mean to repair something or to set something in order to, to fix a joint in the body, if you will. But it also refers to the overall process of sanctification, the overall process of perfecting of the saints, if you will. When Paul is praying for them that they would be restored in some way, he's praying for their sanctification. They would continue to be restored into the image of Christ, that there's great news that the good news of the gospel is not just that God has saved you from the wages of your sin, but he's now also saving you from your slavery unto sin. He's freeing you to now pursue that which is good. He's freeing you to be conformed to the image of Christ, freeing you to learn and to love the ways of Christ. And all of this, again, is, is the thing he wants you to focus on more than anything else. He wants you to rejoice that Christ has saved you, he has justified you by faith, but also now that you're, this process of sanctification, you're to aim for this. But it's interesting in the Greek, it's in the, passive, um, it's in the passive voice because it's not something you do for yourself. You don't restore yourself, but rather you yield to the Holy Spirit as he does this work within you. He continues to give you the power and the desire and the knowledge and the love of God that you can grow and be restored into the original image, into something better than the image of, of Christ. Of course, the problem is we have been tainted in every aspect of our lives. Our hearts are, are perverted in so many ways because of sin. Every, every word that we speak, every thought that we formulate in our minds, even the desires that are deep down within our hearts, there's something wrong with us, there's something sick about us, there's something wrong at the very core of our being. That's, that's how we are when we first come to Christ. But then the Spirit comes inside of us. And He begins to restore the right image within us. He begins to restore the good thoughts that we didn't have anymore because of our sin. He begins to restore that which is glorious, that which is good. He does that within us. And he says, aim for that. Continue to aim for restoration. That you would, glow, you would grow up in your faith. That you would be rebuilt into the image of God in that, in that case. But, but it's not also 
uh, a restoration for yourself as an individual, but also the restoration of the church as a whole. We're to aim for that together. Paul tells the Corinthians to aim for this restoration of the church as a whole toward God. Again, it's, it's, it's the idea that uh, we, we have a new society. There's a new people of God that he's brought together. We're congregating together as the new society of God. And in this society, we have to understand that we're naturally sinful. We naturally are going to say and do things that are wrong. But at the same time, we also know it's a place of restoration. It's a place where we get better, right? Sometimes the people have referred to the church as um, a hospital for the sick, right? And there's some truth to that, but not in the sense that we're all laying down on a bed and attached to an IV and we can't do anything, but rather maybe we're all in the physical therapy, if you will. We're all learning how to walk again. We're all learning how to get up and to do the things that God has called us to do. But it's within a society in which we're all aiming for this type of restoration, the restoration of the inner man, that we all would grow up in our faith in Christ. And even when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying for that, that the Lord would continue to deliver us from this evil so that we can pursue that which is good, that we can be restored into the image of Christ. And if we're going to do that, we also have to be that society that is very gracious to others, as we are learning to be restored. There's a passage in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. See, we're not only aiming for our own restoration, but we're aiming to see the image of Christ restored in all the rest of us as well. We're aiming for that. We're aiming to win them to Christ, to help see more of Christ in each one of us. And this leads us to his third exhortation. So first of all, he talks about rejoicing. And then second, he talks about aiming for this idea of restoration. And then third, in verse 11, he also says that we're to comfort one another, knowing that the church consists not only of saints, but also of those who still sin. It's only a matter of time before one of us is caught. In sin. But when the church is healthy, when the church is growing, and the church continues to focus on rejoicing in the Lord and, and knowing that all glory belongs to Christ alone and not to us, and when the church begins to seek that aspect of restoration, she doesn't immediately circle the wounded like vultures and immediately try to, to judge those who have done wrong. But rather, now each sinner is coming alongside of other sinners who have been saved by grace, looking for restor restoration, looking to comfort them even in the midst of their woundedness because of their sin, looking to bring the comfort of the gospel to them. This is one of the primary themes of 2 Corinthians. Over and over again, Paul keeps mentioning this idea of, I have received the comfort of God. Why? So I can give that comfort to others. That I can continue to share the good news of the gospel and giving comfort to others. Uh, we, we see this over and over again in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul says, for, for such a one, this punishment is enough so that you should rather turn to forgive and comfort this man who has committed this sin so that he might not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So he says, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. So in other words, there is a church discipline place that had taken place in Corinth uh, a man who had refused to repent of his sin uh, for a time was disciplined, but then now he's repenting. The church should immediately envelop him in love, immediately restore him 
to the life of the church, show him the comfort again of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're meant to, to, to come together to show that, that comfort. But not just in terms of our sin. The truth of the matter is that we, we live in a miserable world, do we not? I mean, if you, if you look at the news this week, I mean, there's a lot of tragedy, a lot going on in our world. But, but if I were to just ask you, what's the news going on in your particular life? It's the same way, right? There's a lot of bad things that have happened in our lives just this week. And God calls each one of us into the church to bring that same aspect of comfort to one another. Some of us have had a really great week. We've been very encouraged by the things of the Lord. And when we come together as a church, some of us are ready to give an encouraging word to those who have had a really, really bad week. Maybe it's been a really bad month. Maybe it's been a really bad year. Some of us are sitting in darkness. Some of us have been depressed extremely by what has happened in our lives, the the sin that we have seen, the sin that we have witnessed and we're called to come together to bring the comfort of the gospel to one another once again. Um, some of you are familiar with Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Um, his, his book, uh, Life Together, is a, is a book about the church, if you will. And one of my favorite quotes in that book, he says this, In the Christian community, we meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. So in other words... When you come into this room, when you gather together with the people of God in in homes throughout the week, every time you're coming together, you're coming reminding each other of the beauty and the wonder and the truth of the gospel of Christ. You're bringing the gospel to each other. Again, I think a lot of people think that the gospel is meant for people who are unbelievers, that we have to preach the gospel so they get it, so they understand the good news. But that's not how the Scripture sees it. The Scripture says each one of us needs the good news daily. We need to be reminded daily of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there's not only hope for my salvation, but there's hope for me here and now in this land of the living. There's something that God can do in us now and not just something in the future. So the church is made to be remade in the image of God to bring the comfort of the gospel to one another. Then fourth, Paul also says in verse 11 that we're to agree with one another. In his first epistle, in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul said this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, why would he ask them to agree with one another? Maybe because they don't do that naturally. Maybe because sin has so affected our minds and even our judgments that we all have the tendency in our foolish pride to think that we have it right all the time and that no one else does. Maybe because we think that we have the right interpretation of Scripture and no one else does. (laughs) Maybe because we think we live the right Christian lifestyle and no one else does. That we raise our kids right, no one else does. That we wear the right clothes, no one else does. That we eat the right foods, no one else does. I mean, I can just go on and on and on. We all think that we're right about something. And then we come into the church and what do we do when we realize that everyone else is not right? (laughs) We judge them. We look down upon them. We condemn them. We constantly point out something that we see as a flaw in them in that regard. Uh, But even in the things that in which we know that we're wrong in, we still have the tendency to demand our own way anyway and still say that we're right. 
Uh, there's something wrong with us, desperately wrong with us, that has to be changed. And so he says, when we come together, we're to agree with one another. But what does that mean? Does it mean that we have to agree on every single thing, literally? That would be almost impossible to do. I'm about to preach the book of Daniel and then the book of Revelation after that. You better all agree with me by the time I'm done. I'm pretty sure that there's going to be a good number of people like, what is he saying? That's not right. It's going to happen. Uh, I don't don't think that we're meant to agree on every little thing. I I will say this. I I will say it very plainly. I do firmly believe 100% there's only one correct interpretation of Scripture. There's only one. It's not left up to our whim to decide what we think it means. But the problem is I just don't think that I always have it right. And I know that you don't. No, No, I, I know we don't. All of us are going to make mistakes. All of us are going to have errors. All of us are going to have some blind spots. We don't fully understand what Scripture means. So we, we can't say, well, I'm just going to agree with everybody else just because everybody else says it. That's not what he's saying. Um, in fact, um, there, there are a couple places in Scripture where he elaborates on this point of what it means to agree with another person in the Lord. Literally, the, the, as it's phrased in the Greek, he doesn't say agree with one another. Rather, he says, have the same mind with the others. But what does he mean by that? Well, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, this is the mind he's promoting. He says, let no one think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. He says, this is the mindset that you're all to have, that you don't think that you are something that no one else is. You don't think you're, you're so high and everybody else is so low. That You don't come thinking that you always have the right judgment and everybody else doesn't, that you have some greater measure than everyone else in the church. He's saying that's the wrong mindset. You're, you're, you're meant to all agree that you don't have it right. And then secondly, Philippians chapter 2, Paul again elaborates on this of what it means to have the same mind. In this case, he talks about have the very mind of, of Christ and this is the mind. He says, do, not, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves or more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is the very mind of Christ himself. If we can do that, if we can look outside of ourselves and look to others and, and look to serve others, then we can all agree to have the same mindset. It's not, he's not saying that you, we need to agree on every little aspect of how we live our lives, but we need to agree on who we are and our own limitations and why we need each other in the church, why we need Christ. If we can do that, then maybe we won't fight each other quite so much, right? And then fifth, Paul gives this exhortation, to live in peace with the corresponding promise that if we're able to do that, the God of love and peace will be with us. Now, how can you live at peace with someone you're at odds with? That's the question. Uh, Romans 12, verse 18, again, Paul elaborates, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. In other words, initiate. Go and seek reconciliation. Initiate that peace. If it's up to you, go and try to make peace with all men. But that doesn't guarantee you that the person you're trying to make peace with wants to make peace with you, right? Uh, But still, the Scripture requires us to do it up to our utmost to try to make peace with those 
that for some reason are at odds with us. If, if we continue to pour fire, pour fuel on the fire, we're going to make it worse. If we, on the other hand, learn to pour water on that same thing, maybe we can have a cool head and, and, and look and find peace in the midst of that. But there's some people who are never going to be at peace with us. They, they just won't. Um, if it's up to us, let's be at peace. And so the, it's the fool who continues to lose his temper when he sees that his particular way of doing things, his particular viewpoint is continuing to cause damage, not only to his own life, but to his friends, but to his church as well. Uh, when we see how our own sinful pride and anger, when we continue to demand our own way, is ripping the church apart, that ought to bring some sense of conviction by the Holy Spirit, that we would look for peace. We would not continue to look to have our own way. Again, it doesn't mean that every party is always going to come to the same conclusion on, on all of these things, but this is, this is the way of Christ. It also doesn't mean that if we're going to pursue peace, that we must ignore holiness. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're going to pursue peace at all costs, that we never look to see whether or not the truth of Scripture is being taught, whether or not uh, there's sin that needs to be repented of. The last two chapters, Paul has proved that to us. The last two chapters, he continues to point out the errors in, these, in the teachings of these super apostles. He continues to point out how they're not serving Christ. If he just wanted peace, he wouldn't say anything about that. he just let it go. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying in order to do that, you have to keep your mouth shut. Certainly, if that were the case, Luther never would have said anything against the pope he never would have said anything against the church at the time he would have just kept his mouth shut and we'd all still be catholic today which is really concerning because you see the way the direction of the catholic church is taken today it's even worse i mean they're literally right now the the pope is starting to change his mind on divorce homosexuality and a number of other things uh, there are a lot of people within the catholic church today who are beginning to wonder is he the antichrist it's very concerning but that's why the church calls all of us to pursue both peace as well as purity within the church. We have to speak up when we know something is, is wrong within the life of the church. Uh, Paul was saying that at times you have to make some hard decisions and, and act in discipline upon those who are, who are not living accordance uh, to the Scripture. But at other times, you actually have to withdraw from a church that refuses to take discipline that refuses to act upon these things again half the time the reason why we have denominations today is simply because the church originally would not listen to what luther had to say they would not listen and so i know a number of you have come from other churches you, you felt the same way the church is not listening we want to be able to listen to correction to rebuke in order the in, in the pursuit of peace but at the same time, to promote this act of peace, he goes on, verse 12, and he says, to greet one another with a holy kiss. So he says, if you want to promote peace within your church, go kiss each other. What exactly is a holy kiss? Well, it's not a sensual kiss. It's not an erotic kiss of any kind. It's uh, rather the type of greeting that normally was reserved for a family member. It's as you would kiss your mom, as you would kiss your sister, your brother, in that sense. Uh, even to this day, and as you know, in some European countries, they'll still kiss each other when they greet each other on, on the streets. But it's interesting, contrary to what you might think, the church did not start kissing each other in this way based upon what the culture was doing. It was the other way around. 
The culture followed suit based upon what the church started doing. Prior to the New Testament, prior to the Apostle Paul giving this command in this regard, no one outside of your own family members or someone that you held in deep, high respect would you ever kiss in public, especially someone of a different socioeconomic background than you, someone who's lower in class than you. You would never kiss that person. Paul was encouraging people who had come from Jewish backgrounds to kiss those of Gentile backgrounds. He was encouraging people who had been of the slave class to kiss someone of the ruling class. He was encouraging them to greet one another in such a way to show that they had a familial bond that superseded anything within their society. The only caveat, the only qualification that he gave to them was basically that this would be a kiss done in love, uh, in holiness, uh, in order to protect the church. So uh, in, in ancient times, it wasn't uh, the norm for women to kiss men or men to kiss women. It was the other way around. The women would kiss the women when they greeted one another. The men would kiss the men when they greeted one another. So at the end of this service, I'm not sure what to do with this command. <laughs> um, so, um, I don't know about you, but I, my own father doesn't kiss me, and if he did, I would be really shocked and scared if he did. Um, but as you know, uh, some translations, uh, I think we got the Phillips translation, would say, give one another a holy handshake, right, in that regard. I don't know if it raises itself up to the same level of intimacy that a holy kiss would, but after COVID, if you touch anybody at all, it seems intimate, uh, in, in that regard. But, but I, I would say, still, his emphasis here is this, that we are to treat one another as family members, that we are to seek out one another in love, that we're to do this with every single person in the church. He makes that a commitment every single time and he writes in these letters. He says, greet all the saints. Don't just greet the ones that you like, don't just greet the ones that you agree with. Don't just greet the ones that you've not had a conflict with, but greet all the saints. Now, again, some may refuse to greet you, but nevertheless, he says, greet them all. In fact, in Romans 16, he goes down this really long list of people by name. It's like 30 people. He says, greet that person. Greet this person. Greet that person. Greet this person. And when they're coming, he says, you need to greet all of them. And then in, in Philippians, he says, greet all your leaders, all your elders, all your deacons, greet them all. And it's interesting, I, I think I've shared with you guys before, I did a sermon in, in Connecticut on that passage, and I had at least three people came up to me and says, I haven't greeted elder so-and-so in 10 years, because I hate his guts. <laughs> and I said, I know. <laughs> you need to go greet him. But something as simple as just going up and saying, hey, Hadn't seen you all. Well, haven't talked to them all. Well, let's let's connect. You'd be surprised what that can do when you've had conflict with them. You've been at odds with them. Don't be that person who sits in the church on this side of the room because so and so sits on this side of the room, right? He says, greet one another in such a holy way that you're you're, you're trying to reestablish love uh, between the between the flock. And so, um, verse fourteen, he then ends with this this benediction. 
And, and, and the benediction should sound familiar to you if you've been here at all, because I often use this exact benediction uh, at the end of many services. But you'll notice I often add two words to the Scripture. What? The pastor's adding words to Scripture? No. I'm adding words of clarification. That's all I'm doing. You'll notice that in the original, it says something of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that I add the words, the love of God, the Father, so you can see that he's showing this to be a Trinitarian blessing. I'm just making it very clear to you. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When he refers to the God, he's referring to Father in that regard. But he's showing that if we're going to have this type of loving fellowship in our midst, it has to be first within the right fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll say this. There's nothing peculiar about the Son having grace or the Spirit having fellowship or the Father having love. You could exchange these words in any order. It wouldn't matter whatsoever. All of these attributes are certainly known for each single person. But the point is, it's within the context of the fellowship of the Trinity. As we enter into the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, when we're right with God, we can be right with each other. When we're not right with God, we're going to be at odds with one another. So he, he pronounces this blessing upon them. He's, 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 he's praying over them that they would know the love of God the Father. They would know the grace of Jesus Christ. They would know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Why? So they can give that love to each other. They can give that grace to each other when they sin. They can enter more fully into that fellowship of the Holy Spirit because that's the way God has designed us to work. First, being in a right relationship with God and then also in a right relationship with each other. It's interesting, Martin Luther not only called the Pope the Antichrist, and the priests, merchants of souls, he referred to the Holy See of the Catholic Church as the worst whorehouse of all whorehouses. They really should have killed him early. He really uh, he, he spoke freely and gave some very harsh criticisms, but basically what he's saying is, instead of the church looking like a loving bride of Christ, it looks like a whore that you've sold off to the highest bidder. That's a very harsh criticism, but I can tell you that Many of you have come from churches that you felt that way. The church saw you as a number. The church uh, abused you. The church just continued to look like it was just anything other than a, a loving bride in, in, that, in, in that regard. But I, I'm glad to say now you're here and now it's perfect. So <laughs> We know that's not completely true. Um, the, the, you have to know we are still sinful here as well. We still will fail you. We still will say things that will hurt your feelings at times. We will do things that you won't agree with at times. All of us are prone to division. All of us have pride. Lord, we feel it. Uh, but at the same time, the Scripture calls us toward this ideal. This is what the church should be. This is how to restore the church in the, in the right way. So what I encourage you to do is, as you're praying over these things. You're meditating upon these things this week. You're thinking about, you know, why don't I rejoice in the Lord that much? Why, why am I not excited about the gospel anymore? You know, why am I not growing in my faith, being restored in the image of Christ? Why am I not pursuing the grace and comfort of, of the Holy Spirit and then being able to give that to others? I encourage you to pray for the church as well. Pray for us as well. That all of us would regain that new song 
to sing unto the Lord, that we all would regain that desire to be restored, that we would be sick of this horrible, distorted image that we see in ourselves and want to look more like Christ, that we would have the power and the desire to give more grace and love and comfort to others, that we would have something to give. So again, as, we're, as you're praying, remember the Lord's Prayer. You're always praying for all of us, that we all together would grow in this idea of sanctification, that we would all grow together in learning to give glory to Christ alone. This is the fellowship he calls us to. We're just as weak and sinful as the church was in the 16th century, but it can be better. And we have the hope of the gospel to prove that it can be. Let us seek the hope of the gospel. Let us seek the Lord together. Let's pray. Father, we we come to you again. We know that the church uh, can be stained in so many different ways. We know that uh, uh, at times, sometimes even the churches have to close their doors because they have been through so much division, so much turmoil. We know what it's like to be at odds with people in the church that we don't agree with. We know that what, at times what it is to be offended by someone that, that at one time we trusted so well. Father, we know what it is like when, when we ourselves disappoint ourselves and, and see that same pride and anger and we see just so many ways in which we're selfish. We pray, Father, you continue to, to grow us up in the faith that we would know the hope and the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you'd restore that in us, you would restore that in our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would cause us all, Lord, to walk in the fellowship of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.